Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Henry Cowan. Henry's best known for helping to popularize chasing freshwater stripers on the fly. Join us as Henry shares his experiences growing up and fishing in New York City, his striper learning curve when he moved to the South, and how the gear guys have influenced his fly angling. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we move on to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It would really help us out. And if you could tell a friend, that would be even better. And also a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's brought to you by our friends at the Bristol Bay Defense Fund. With the decision on the Pebble Mine's most critical federal permit application due any day now, 2020 is an important turning point in this long-running saga. To help this diverse coalition continue its efforts to protect one of the world's largest wild salmon runs and all of its economic, cultural, and ecological benefits, please visit www.bristolbaydefensefund.com and donate today. Now, on to our interview. Well, Henry, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Good evening, Marvin. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. I I always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Okay, who's your guest tonight? Oh, me. Yeah, you. All right, Um, me, my earliest fishing memory. All right, now remember, I'm a child of the 70s, so I don't know how far back I can really remember. Um, But uh, my earliest memories of fishing uh, was positively fishing with my dad. And, you know, we were either, and it's one of two, we were either fishing off of the Coney Island uh, beaches of the steeplechase pier that went out into the Atlantic for either Tinker Mackerel and Whiting, or or we were sitting in a, in a, in a rowboat somewhere in, uh, somewhere in either Jamaica Bay or, or out in uh, um, Rockaway Inlet fishing for fluke. And I, I'm guessing I was between four and six years old for the most part. And, and I don't know which came first, but that's like the chicken and the egg because we did them both. You know, we just, when we had the time, we would rent the rowboat and go fluke fishing up in New York. And if we didn't have a ton of time, we'd, we'd take a five minute ride into Coney Island where I grew up and, and, and just, uh, you know, with, with little rods and jig for, uh, for mackerel and stuff. So that that's my, my earliest memories of fishing that I remember. Yeah. Very neat. When did you get pulled to the dark side of fly fishing? You know, um, so my dad used to fly fish a little bit on a lake up in New York state, uh, up not far from the Delaware river in Roscoe, the trout streams of Roscoe, New York. And, uh, uh, which is considered, as you know, the birthplace of North American fly fishing. That's we had we had a place up there in the summer when I was ten years old, and so my dad used to fly fish on White Lake um, and Conneaga Lake for for largemouth bass. So I used to watch him do it, and I didn't take it up. I had no interest in it until I I moved up to Connecticut, and when I moved up to Stamford, Connecticut, in 1988. It was probably a year or two later, 89 or 90, when I, uh, I, I was sitting on a beach one morning, standing in a pair of waders. Uh, and as first light approached, I walked into the water with a bucktail jig and a spinning rod. And uh, three young guys came walking down the beach with fly rods and got in the water, not within 100 feet of me. And we just, we just had the time of our lives catching schooly striped bass up to probably... 25 inches and as much as i enjoyed bucktail fishing when i saw these guys giggling in the rods these nine foot rods doubled over um i just looked and said that that was the epiphany for me that's when i decided i gotta try this this looks like way too much fun yeah very neat and so you know that was what probably you know in your late 20s and so you'd been fishing gear for a pretty good while what was that transition like for you you know it was really easy um you know, a lot of guys that start fly fishing, um, they may be doing, you know, they may start fly fishing for trout. Most people are either trout fishing or, uh, or brim fishing. I think for the most, either in a brim pond or in a stream fishing for trout, or maybe a few guys might be, you know, fishing for bass in their local lakes or ponds as well. But for me, I, I grew up in, in New York city, which is a saltwater playground. So for me, you know, 
transitioning from from gear to to the fly side from conventional gear for the fly side just made way too much sense my my wheels were spinning a hundred miles an hour because I would go to the fly shop and look at the flies that they were selling at the time and this is again let's call it 1990 the Clouser minnow was two or three years old and you know there were deceivers and Dahlberg divers and there were a lot of standard you know kind of flies for stripers back then but um you know the flies that i was used to fishing uh or, or the lures i should say that i was used to fishing the colors were magnificent the different color stories of of a herring you know a herring lure versus a bunker lure versus a mullet lure they they all had different color patterns and i wanted you know that's where i wanted to get my flies to emulate those lures that that made sense where you were you know, taking a, a bunker or a herring and it had to have a little bit of pink in it or, you know, a herring pattern had a lighter blue versus, say, um, uh, a mullet pattern, which may have had a, a dark green or a dark blue top on it. Or, you know, so to me, it was all about how could I get those those lure colors into my flies? And the only guys at the time that I knew of that were really doing that were the guys down in uh, down in uh in Seaside Park in New Jersey, where the Atlantic saltwater fly riders were, that was Popovics and that whole crew uh, back in the early 90s. Those were the guys that were really, to me, the most creative and the most inventive of both fly and color. And, and uh, I never did get to go down to those club meetings because it was just a three-hour drive from Connecticut. So I never did a two-and-a-half, three-hour drive. I just never did make that trip. But um, years later, having learned about it, they, these guys were at the forefront of this stuff. And that's, so was it for me, it was a real easy transition. The hard transition was, you know, how do I get this thing out 40 or 50 feet? Because when I first started casting, you know, it was basically a 20 foot cast. I didn't take a casting lesson. It was like, let's just go out there and wing it. This can't be that difficult. And, and Marvin, the greatest, the greatest story I've got is, so when I lived in Connecticut, I lived in a place called Stan in Stamford, Connecticut. I lived in uh, an area called Chapan Point, and literally, Chapan Point was a peninsula, and I was three blocks behind me, to the left of me, or to the right of me from from salt water. And when you came out of my house, you made a right turn and walked three blocks. I had a beach in front of me. And I would go down there in the early part of June when the sand deals were coming in. And I would, before I'd go to work every morning and take the train into Manhattan, I would, I would be on, uh, in my truck sitting there at first light. And all of a sudden I would do this around the, around Memorial day. And sometime within the next 10 days, that beach would light up with stripers pop in the surface. And the day that it started that next morning, I would go out there with the fly rod and if I tell you, I'll never forget the first day I went out there and I was standing in water up to my thighs and I had stripers all around me for as far as the eye could see. And I couldn't reach the fish. The, the fish were 30 feet away and I couldn't reach the fish because I had just started fly fishing and it was a 20 foot cast. And I just said, this isn't going to work. So the next day I got up and went back out with my spinning rod and clocked them. And then I found that there was a, one of my, um, there was a place where that connected Stamford and Darien called Holly Pond. And it was a, uh, the Neroten river ran into long Island sound. And there was a little muscle strewn jetty that went across that attached Darien and Stamford. And I would get up there on the outgoing tide and I would make my 20, 25 foot cast. And because of the water flowing out from the Neroten river on the outgoing tide, I could just wiggle line out. And that's how I actually caught my first stripers on fly rod. Yeah, that's pretty neat, and it sounds like your interest in fly tying was almost about the same time you got into the sport, kind of given that you were trying to bring your conventional gear to your fly fishing. Well, it was. You know, um, it was within a year I started fly tying. Um, I bought flies for that first year, and then uh, I remember Fly Tire magazine came out, and on the cover of the magazine was a fly called a Pop Lips. And when I saw that fly, it was, you know, it, it was the magic moment. And I just said, oh, my God, this thing is going to this thing is going to be retrieved for a fly rotter like a red fin. 
or a bomber long A. I said this, you know, for for lack of a better term for you guys that don't know gear as much, a, a, a rapala or a rapala. It was going to be like a like a a, a a swimmer with a lip on it, and um, that that's that's kind of what that's kind of what you know set set it off for me when I saw that. I called Popovics up, got his phone number, called him up, and said, "How can I buy a half a dozen of these pop lips?" And he's like, "I don't sell my flies, but there's a guy up in Connecticut named Eric Peterson who's an unbelievable fly tire. And I said, I know Eric. He goes, he'll tie him for you. He'll do custom flies for you. And Eric tied up a few of these pop lips and the colors that I wanted. And uh, that was it. That was the magic moment for me that just said, I got to start tying flies. Yeah. And I think the amazing thing too is, um, and I've seen Bob tie that fly. I think it was actually up at the fly tying symposium last year, but you know, we're spoiled now, right? We've got every possible kind of easy cure adhesive and goo, but you know, to go back and look at, um, you know, literally going to, you know, a hardware store and trying to figure out what kind of sealants and epoxies would let you work with the materials you had available. I mean, it was a lot of work, not just to figure out the action, but just to make the materials work on a fly. It's amazing how far the fly tying industry has come in 30 short years. It seems like a lifetime, but my gosh, you know, today, uh, with the likes of the things like that Johnny King is tying or Blaine chocolate is tying along with Popovics and, uh, you know, Charlie Bisharad out on the West coast. These guys are, you know, just, you know, David Nelson, these guys from squimpish flies, these guys are just a cut above. It's, it's, it's just incredible to watch these guys sit and come up with this stuff. Um, so yeah, we've come a long way and, um, you know, once again, Guys are, you know, the big thing in fly tying today is everybody's blending colors, blending this, blending that. Well, that's, that's exactly what, that's what the gear guys have been doing for 30 years has been blending colors, um, for our lures. So, you know, it's, it's had a huge influence on the, on, especially on the saltwater side. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of get that itch and, uh, do you remember the first vice you bought and the first fly you tied on it? I do. Um, you know, my first, my, my first vice was just a regular old regal, just a plain old regal. Um, and then, uh, and I, I'm sure it was a, a Clouser minnow because, you know, that's the American express. You don't leave home without that fly. Um, so I'm sure it was a chartreuse and white or an olive and white Clouser. I'm, I'm sure I can't remember which color it was, but I'm sure that it had this gigantic white bulked up head and looked absolutely horrible. And guess what? Stripers in Connecticut did not care. They ate it. <laughs> there they you, absolutely ate it. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, to fast forward just a little bit, so you've got quite a few patterns now that are carried by Umqua. Um, do you remember the first pattern you sold professionally and uh, how long it took you to kind of go from tying that first Clouser uh, to getting something? I think, it, I guess originally they were picked up by Orvis, but how long did that take? Right. Yeah, so, you know... Uh, my first patterns were picked up. I think I started tying around 91 and my first pattern was picked up with Orvis probably around 96, 97. Um, and what they, they took, uh, the first fly they took from me was my Magnum bait fish, uh, which at the time was tied with Icelandic sheep. And the beauty of, of tying a fly with Icelandic sheep is that you, I was tying this big 10 inch long, pattern that emulated a bunker or an Atlantic herring. And when you lifted it out, you know, most of the flies back then, most, I will say, um, did not shed water. Everybody was tying these gigantic, you know, bunker flies with a lot of feathers and bucktail and everything else. And it was like casting half a chicken. And, and, you know, my whole thing was how can I throw a big fly on an eight weight instead of, you know, I'm not the side, you know, Popovics and Charlie Bisharat, these are big, these are guys that can play middle linebacker in their day. You know, uh, me, I'm a, I was a punter, you know, I wasn't going to be able to throw the, the rod like these guys can. So, um, my whole thing was, was tying this fly that when you lifted it out of the water would, would slim down to being a pencil. And then the minute it hit the water, it blew back up. And, uh, so that was the first fly that Orvis took from me, the Magnum bait fish. And that fly has since uh, in its day had, had three striped bass world record line class records to its, uh, 
you know, to its credit. So it, it was a really good fly. And then over time, eventually what ended up happening was I kept begging Orvis to take my uh, coyote fly, which was a really good fly, which you don't know what a coyote is. It's basically a, a bucktail jig. I, I'm sorry. It was, it's basically a roadrunner lure. And, a, you know, a roadrunner is a bucktail jig with a spinner blade on the front. And when I was gear fishing, that was my absolute number one lure that I could outfish guys to the left of me throwing bucktails and to the right of me throwing bucktails. I could outfish them three or four to one with that little horse head with a little spinner blade hanging off the front. It was called a roadrunner made by Blakemore. And so I started tying, when I got into the fly side, you know, I said, I need a roadrunner for, for fly fishing. And that's when I came up with the coyote. And the reason it's called coyote, Marvin, is because, as you know, in the cartoon, what followed the roadrunner? Yep, the coyote. The coyote. So that's how it got its name. And so um, uh, that fly came out. Orvis absolutely refused to put that fly in the catalog because the spinner blade made it a very non-traditional fly. Back in the mid-90s, you know, the question was, was it, is it a fly or is it a lure? And that came up, and, and there was a whole debate on that, on when a fly is a fly and when it's not. And so uh, I had a very good friend up in Connecticut that I started fishing. Oh, I should say a good acquaintance that became a friend over the years that I used to fish with on, from now and then on, on the beaches of Connecticut, Lou Tabory. And Lou said to me, Henry, you need to send that fly to the IGSA and let them tell you, if you catch the world record, will they... Will they verify and and give you a world record and i said that's an interesting idea so i sent it to them i had to they asked me to send them five flies and i sent them five and they sent it out to their fly tying their fly fishing gurus that made up the board and that was basically Stu App, billy pate uh mark sosen lefty cray and chico fernandez and sure enough four out of five said yes and Orvis still wouldn't take the fly even with that letter, but Uncle would. And so I kind of, I kind of moved companies and went from Orvis to Uncle because they were taking the coyote and that fly was, was taken back by Uncle back in the early 2000s. And it's been with them, it's been with them almost 20 years. So it's, it's been a fairly successful fly. You know, the interesting thing about fly design and these, um, these companies that, you know, that we're designing flies for is, Bruce Olson, who used to run sales for Umqua, said to me, if your pattern lasts 10 years, you got a classic. Anything that goes beyond 10 years, consider yourself lucky. Most flies don't last 10 years. So, you know, I've been blessed that, that I've got a number of flies now that are going on 15, 16, 17 years with them. So I've been really fortunate. And I've got a couple with uh, Orvis still in there that, that um, they're still running. Uh, that they must be tying themselves or from Uncle. I don't know what they're doing, but th those flies have been in their catalog for the better part of 18, 20 years as well. So I've been really fortunate, Marvin. Yeah, really neat. And, you know, you've kind of touched on this a little bit earlier on in the interview, you know, that when you were designing flies, you were really trying to, you know, replicate conventional lures. Is that kind of been the main uh, kind of driver behind your tying or do you also kind of have specific fishing problems that you're trying to solve when you're doing fly design? You know, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's probably a little of both. Um, you know, there are some, there's no question that when something new comes out that is hot as a fire, you know, I, I still love going out in my boat and when I'm not with a customer, when I'm not guiding, I love throwing a bait caster or spinning rod in my boat. I'm, I'm not a fly only kind of guy and, and I can just fish harder and faster with a conventional rod in my hand so I can figure out the pattern. And when something new comes out, like for instance, a new color, one of the hot colors in the last 10, 12 years on the gear side is a, a color called sexy shed. You didn't see that anywhere in the fly side, but guys were, were having just tremendous success on area lakes with sexy shed, which is nothing more than gray over white with a, a chartreuse yellow line going down the middle of the lure. And so now all of a sudden we're tying flies up in sexy shed and they're extremely, extremely successful. It's a great color combination. It's not just chartreuse only anymore. There's a lot of really good color combinations. And so staying on, staying on that, you know, staying on the cutting edge of what's going on on the gear side, I think is extremely 
helpful to the fly side. And then there are obviously um, there are times where you just have to um, solve a problem. You know, one of the problems we had years ago when I was fishing Lanier was when the fish are on these itty bitty thread fin shad, well, let's just call them young of the year thread fin between an inch and an inch and a half long, the stripers, we'll see them up on top, just absolutely devouring thousands of thousands of schools, a thousand school of bait fish packed together tightly. It looks like something you'd see on uh, the discovery channel or national geographic. And you'll get into that, Pray and throw a fly and they don't eat. And you're sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. How can that be? I'm throwing a two and a half inch long, three inch long clouser. How are you not eating this? Or a small deceiver and they wouldn't eat it. And now all of a sudden, now you got to go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? And by the way, if you were to ask Lefty back in the day uh, when he was around, if, and I had asked him this many years ago, and I said, Lefty, what's What's the hardest fish you've ever had a hard time trying to get to eat a fly? And Lefty said to me, he didn't even hesitate. And he said, striped bass when they're on itty bitty baits. He goes, they are next to impossible to fool. And so that's, um, that, that's one of the things that, that I learned. And that, that's how we came up with the something else fly. Um, that kind of solved the problem. And, and the something else fly is nothing more than a polar fiber clouser. Uh, tied with a little bit of uh, a throat of uh, hot pink fluorofiber. And it's the combination of using something so supple that it can breathe and move even when it's free falling, along with that little bit of flash in there. That, that's the ticket. So that, that didn't come from the, from the lure side. That just came from solving a problem. So in answer to your question, I think, I think you take a little from both sides. You know what I mean? You yeah. solve a problem and 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 you learn what you you keep you you keep in touch with what's going on on the gear side at least i do yeah no it makes a lot of sense are you working on any new patterns now that you're you're prototyping uh when you're not fishing with uh with clients you know i'm i'm letting blaine prototype all his flies i'm a big fan of chocolate and his flies i'm gonna let him prototype i'm just gonna let him find figure it out send me the flies and i'll fish them there you go you know you know and and not not to go off topic too much, but you know when Blaine developed his his uh, game changer fly, that all came you know that whole idea of his of getting the fish the, the fish spines and getting it to wiggle that was one part of the of figuring out you know the problem um, that he wanted to do, and the other part was his original ones all had um, lips on them to get them to wiggle left and right and. And at the, at the time he was playing with those and sending me prototypes to fish and try and, and whatnot, Blaine and I are extremely close. Um, you know, I said, Blaine, there's, there's a lure out there called a Sabeel Magic Swimmer. Have you, are you familiar with it? And he was like, no, not really. And I said, let me send you one. So I sent him one and it's an articulated lure with no lip and it wiggles. It's got that serpentine wiggle. And I said, Blaine, you've got to figure out how to make this fly that you're doing work like that lure without the lip and son of a gun if anybody could do it he 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 figured it out and deserves all the credit in the world and but again that there's where the hot what i consider the hottest fly in the united states today bar none how that transcends back to the gear side and and what he was able to figure out it's just it's amazing to me yeah that's really neat and um you know, as we kind of start to talk a little bit more about stripers, before we talk about how you cracked the code on freshwater stripers when you moved to the south, um, just to give us a little bit of context, can you kind of give us um, a brief overview of kind of the season and the life of a saltwater striper versus that of a freshwater striper? Yeah, I mean, they're not particularly different. The, you know, the stripers all, you know, whether you're a saltwater striper or a freshwater striper, you all run up the rivers to spawn. Most of the time, if there's a river system involved, um, they're going to run up the river and spawn. So, you know, the stripers in salt water, most of the population come from either the Hudson River group or they come from the Chesapeake Bay group. And the, the Chesapeake Bay certainly has the, the largest population of saltwater stripers. Um, and, and those fish run up into the bay and up into the, into the rivers, spawn, and then they make their 
their their migration north as you know after April and May or March and April when they're up there spawning. Come April, May, they start making their migration north, go up the East Coast and run all the way up to probably as far as Maine and, and probably a little further. And then um, they summer over in the Northeast up in that New England area. And uh, when the water temps start cooling off, they leave the estuaries and the bays of Maine and Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Connecticut and come back down and pass Montauk Point and go back south and uh, end up either back up the Hudson River or, or you know, or the Chesapeake Bay. So that that's what the stripers basically do in their life. Their life cycle is, you know, they can probably live upwards of 20 years. Those fish can go 60, 70 pounds. Uh, you know, it's possible that there's an 80 out there on occasion, maybe. I don't know. I, I think there's a new world record of 80 pounds. I'm not 100% sure of the past couple of years, but they easily can get to 50, 60 pounds if they're not harvested and they can grow. They can live long enough to grow to that weight. Um, and so the, that's the big thing with saltwater and freshwater. Our fish generally only live anywhere from 10 to maybe 14 years uh, on average. And, you know, that just has to do a lot with water quality and, 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 and things of that nature. And, um, they just don't live quite as long. So naturally they don't grow quite as big on the high end. Uh, the freshwater striper, what's interesting about them is that because they're landlocked, the ones that are in lake systems enclosed, um, those fish, because they're, they've got a bait source 24 seven, they grow grotesquely wide. They become, they get these gigantic, enormous bellies and just to give you an idea, you know, an average fish in the salt, a 30-inch fish in the salt is 10 pounds for a striped bass. A 30-inch fish on a lake is probably 13, 14, 12 to 14. So they're just heavier at that length, but they, they're just not going to live as long, you know? Got it. Maybe too many Big Macs and French fries. You know, they're not working out as much. They don't have current. You know, that may have a lot to do with it. It may be... Uh, you know, we'll have to ask uh, Dr. Fauci and find out what's going on with that. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, so you spend kind of, you know, the first, you know, half or so of your life up in uh, up in the New York area and you you migrate down to uh, closer to my neck of the woods in the late 90s and uh, you start fishing for stripers on Lake Lanier. And I think it took you about six months to crack the code on them. You know, can you share what that process was like and if there was some light bulb or aha moment while you were trying to piece it all together? Yeah. You know, so naturally you do what, you know, you know, I've, I've been striper fishing from the mid seventies to the mid nineties in the Northeast. And so I know exactly what needs to be done. I need to go fish structure because that's where, you know, stripers in, in Maryland, they call them rockfish and they call them rockfish because they're always around structure, whether that's a, a jetty or rock piles or pilings or sandbars or, rips or points or anywhere there's structure lighthouses um that's where stripers hang out in salt so coming down here i said well you know it's it's the same kind of fish it's a striped bass so i would come down here and and the first as you know six months i would go into a cove and on the you know if one side of the cove going in had all the structure whether it was docks and pylons and rocks and blowdowns and and the right side of the cove was just a red clay bank. I went down that left side and fished it all the way to the back and back out. And if I didn't do anything, I ran to the next cove and fished the left, you know, whatever side had all the structure. And the epiphany was I wasn't catching anything. And all of a sudden, one day I saw birds flying into a cove and some gulls. And I went back in there. And sure enough, the stripers were on the bank with the red clay, just tearing it up. And I caught my first fish on Lanier. And when I got done, I was very happy because I had caught a fish. But what I had noticed more than anything was why were the fish on the red clay and not going down where the docks and the pilings and the blowdowns and, but they weren't. And so that was the epiphany. The epiphany was the threadfin shad liked the red clay better than they liked the structure. And so the red clay was the ticket. That was the light bulb moment for me. Um, I was also very, very fortunate back around 1999 or 
2000, right around there. I met, uh, so at the time I was 40 years old and I met a guy who was 57 and his name was Tom McHugh. And he was a, just a, a good old Southern boy from South Carolina who lived in Gainesville, Georgia, been fishing one year for 30 years as a gear guy. And it was the, I, I met him on the lake on the first day that he ever came out with a fly rod. And, you know, Marvin, you know, the type, the elbow is sticking way out. He looks like he's casting like the Statue of Liberty and, and, you know, with these gigantic open loops and the fly isn't going anywhere. And I just, at the end of the morning, I walk, I, you know, I drove my boat up to him and introduced myself and told him I was happy to see him out with a fly rod because at the time it was just me and one other guy and he was the third one I'd ever seen with a fly rod out there. And I said, you know, I can probably help you with your casting. And, and I said, by the way, that fly you use, and it was a, I want to say it was a chartreuse woolly bugger. I said, you know, it might work, but you can do better than that. So I said, you know, I'm happy to help you out if you're interested. And he just looked at me and he said, you know what, if you'll help me with my fly fishing with the right line, because I thought he was fishing a floating line, which was not going to, not going to work. He basically said, I'll give you my 30 years of Lake Lanier knowledge. I'll trade you for your knowledge on how to fly fish. And that formed a friendship over the next, you know, 15, 16 years until he passed away. And, uh, you know, that, that really sped up the learning curve. And he, by the way, remember, here's another guy who was a gear guy. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, are there, is there maybe, um, uh, you know, obviously being nice to other anglers is a great lesson, but you know, what would you kind of maybe say the average angler should take away from, uh, your experience learning, uh, to fish for stripers on Lake Lanier that they could apply to their everyday fishing to help them become better? Well, you know, if, you know, paying attention is really important learning, seeing what's around your environment. You know, if we're specifically talking, stripers versus other species, whether it's bass or anything, um, you know, paying attention to things in detail, uh, you know, make, I, I would say the most important things you can do is number one, make a log. A fishing log is invaluable. You know, the days that you're successful are as important as the days you're not successful. And, and you'll be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together by having a log and going, boy, isn't it interesting? Here, here's a perfect example. I know that when I'm going to striper fish on my lake, and by the way, we have a fantastic world-class spotted bass fishery, Kentucky spot fishery here on Lanier, um, and it works the same with them. I know for a fact that on the upside of the full moon, somewhere between five and eight days prior to the full moon, up until the day before the full moon, if I had to pick when to go fishing, those are the days you want to fish. You need to pay, you know, and by, by creating a log and going back and looking month after month after month after month and going back and going, geez, you know, I've had three of my best days this month are always on the front side of, you know, on the upside of the full moon. Well, hello, there, there, there's, that should be an epiphany to you right there. And the same thing works on the downside of the moon up to three days and the same thing on the new moon three days before three days after you don't want to fish the day of the moon but before and after and if you keep a great log and keep records you will learn those things um pay attention to what other boats are doing don't crowd them but you know you're going out on a lake and you're striper fishing and you see seven or eight center consoles in an area obviously that tells you there's probably fish over there so you know you don't want to crowd them but go over there and see what's going on it's not always about fishing. A lot of what can be learned is through observation. So I think that that's a big part of it. The other thing is trying to develop a network can be really, really helpful um, with other anglers that you can share information with that you trust um, that aren't going to blab it to five other guys and try and figure things out because it's certainly much easier to find fish on a lake when there's three of us going in three different directions than we're all going to the same place. So developing a good network can be very, very helpful. And talking with other folks that are willing to share information um, is, a, is, is a good, positive thing. So th those are the things that I think are really important in, in you know, paying attention. You know, here's something else. Like when I, when I lived in New York, one of the things I used to do, um, I caught my biggest striped bass, Marvin, fishing under the Marine Parkway Bridge. In, in that that connected Brooklyn to 
Breezy Point, Queens. Um, there was a, a, a just a suspension bridge that was two lanes in each direction that had traffic lights, not traffic lights, had um, uh, lights on the bridge so that cars could see where they were driving, just, you know, regular lights on the bridge. Those lights would create shadows on the water from the bridge. We'd walk under the girders on the bridge and sight cast to stripers going in and out of the, out of the shadows uh, from those lights that cast the shadows under the bridge. And we would catch stripers up to 50 pounds on gear. When I came down here, somebody had made mention about dock light fishing. And once again, I just went back to my roots going, the fish like lights on the lake. And, you know, for guys that don't know, dock light fishing is some of the easiest fishing that there is uh, for stripers on any impoundment in the United States. You, you put a dock light up and you create an aquarium for striped bass. So, uh, you know, one, especially if you can use an, you know, an above water light or what's really great are those underwater green lights by, made by Hydroglow or Green Monster. Those guys are they're fantastic. But once again, you know, you could see how you can learn so much from where the salt and transition it down here. There are things that work and then there are things that don't work. And so it's just a matter of keeping good records and paying attention. Uh, that's going to really help you the most. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we've touched on, you know, the impact of conventional angling on fly angling, but, you know, it's really more than, you know, you spent the first half of your fishing career, you know, only fishing gear. Um, you know, you, you have pretty deep roots into the conventional world. Uh, you know, I know you, you know, you regularly spend time with O'Neill Williams and Shaw Grigsby and, and other folks, you know, what is it that you're kind of harvesting from them that you're bringing to your fly fishing? You know, that, that's, that's, that's a good question. And uh, let's just, uh, I'll say this. I mean, you take guys like Shaw's at the top of the game in the, in the, in the BASS or now whatever they've got now it's major league fishing, uh, that they've, they've moved on to the next, the next, uh, you know, whether it's FLW BASS or now it's major league fishing, the top anglers in the world that fish the United States tournaments and Shaw is certainly right up there with one of them, you know, same with lefty on the fly side. He's one of the great anglers of all times, but not only a great ambassador, but an unbelievable angler. Well, at the end of the day, you know, as well as me that when you were a little kid and you were playing basketball at 10 years old and you were playing with the kids that were 12 and 13, you were getting your butt kicked, but it made you better. You, you, you became better quicker by playing with, with, with the talent. And so for me, Having been fortunate enough to, to, to meet and, and fish with some of these guys, you know, certainly what that does is you can just learn and pick up little things, um, just watching them fish, watching them retrieve the fly. I'll tell you something, Sean Grigsby is a, a gear guy and one of the great world-class gear bass anglers in, you know, here in the country and around the world, and yet this guy loves tarpon fishing with a fly rod like nobody else's business. You know, I think if you asked him if he had one more day on the planet, what would he do? He would take a fly and, and probably fish the uh, anywhere from Homosassa to Tampa, and he'd be out there throwing a fly for tarpon. So, you know, everybody loves to, 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 to you know, trickle over to one side or the other. I'm, I am just not a believer when somebody says, oh, he, look at him, he's fishing the dark side, he's on the gear side, you know. And, hey, you know, I, I caught a lot of fish um, with the fly rod because of the gear. I mean, one of the, one of the big bites that we have on our lake is called the bomber bite. And if you don't know what a bomber is, a bomber long a is a six and a half inch long lure with a lip on it, a plastic lure, like a jerk bait with a lip on it. And you throw that bait up on, on points and sandy beaches in, in, in October in the dark. And if I were to go and do that with a fly rod, it would take me forever to figure out which points they're on. I might have to hit eight points before I find a fish. Allow, but what I'll do is I'll take that bomber and take the hooks off and just throw that, that bomber on a, on a conventional rod. And the minute I go to the first two, three points, I don't catch anything. Go to the fourth point and I get my string tug. I now reel it in. I put my, my bomber away and I pick up the fly rod. And I use the, my conventional gear sort of as my bird dog to find where I'm going to catch those fish on fly. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of good reasons why the two kind of meld together just beautifully. 
both the fly and the gear side. But the funny thing is, is that all these luminaries that I've had the, the fortunate chance of meeting, um, like Lefty and, you know, like Shaw Grigsby and O'Neill and all these guys all do both. They do, but they do fly. They do, they do gear, you know, um, Jose Wahebe, he did fly, he did gear, flip pallet. He did fly, he did gear. So, you know, it's, you don't want to just kind of pickle yourself into a corner. You know what I mean? I, I think it's good to do both. And I think you'll be a more successful angler that much quicker. If you'll, if you'll adapt to what the environment tells you, you need to do. And when I'm throwing gear, I can hit more points a lot quicker than I can with throwing a fly, even though I'd love to catch them on a fly, but I just know I can, I can, if I go out fly fishing on the bomber bite, I can probably hit six or seven points in three hours with a fly rod. And I can hit 25 points with a, with a bait caster. So, you know, you tell me who's going to be more successful. Yeah, it's interesting because as you're saying that, it makes me think about, you know, and then there are times when the fly rod is a better tool, like fishing lily pads for largemouth bass, um, you know, where you don't have to bring the lure all the way back to the boat. You just can kind of pick the lily pads apart. So it's kind of interesting, right? It's kind of about bringing the best tool for the job. Yeah, and, and it's solving the problem. You know, it almost goes back in a, in a different way. You talked about, well, are you, you know, are you designing a fly to make, you know, to, to, to emulate the salt? stuff that you're seeing in conventional or you're doing it to solve a problem well we're fishing our we're, we're picking the we're picking the right gear to solve that problem that time you know on a lily pad there's no question i'd be fishing a fly first you know absolutely positively yeah really interesting and you know and, and not only do you guide for for stripers and spotted bass but you also you know guide for carp and you know so you moved down to to north georgia in the late 90s how did you get into the guide game you know what happened was again, when I moved down here, there was, there was one guy who was guiding for fly fishing down here on the lake and he was using a floating line and all he fished was uh, a white lefties deceiver. And that's all he knew. And he he had some success. Um, and I came down and I, I hired him just to see what he was doing. And he took me into the back of a cove up shallow and he didn't know a thing about intermediate lines and sinking lines or anything like that or different flies. And so, you know, I knew with my experience on the Northeast saltwater fishing that I could fish all levels of the water column where he wasn't aware of that. And I started having some really quick success, you know, after that first six months, I really started putting things together fairly quickly. Um, by the year 2000, 2001, it was all coming together beautifully. It took three years, but it was really all coming together. And Gary Merriman, uh, who owns the Fishhawk in Atlanta, kept saying, I need you to take some of my, I have a half a dozen customers. I'd love for you to take out striper fishing on Lanier, guide them. And I said, Gary, I'm, you know, I'm in the rag business, man. I sell baby clothes. I'm, I'm not looking to, to be a, a, a guide. And so I, I didn't do it. And, you know, a month later he calls me up and he starts pestering me. And this went on for four or five months. And I just said, uncle, and I said, all right, I'll take out six customers, but no more than six. So I took out six guys and I actually really liked it. I found out that I actually, you know, the funny thing, Marvin, is if you came fishing in my boat with me as a buddy, I never get in the front of the boat. My, my, who's ever my guest fishes the front of the boat. And that's just the way I am. And the front of the boat is, you know, always has the advantage because you get the first shot, but that's just the way it is. And that's the way I, I, I fish. So no matter who gets in my boat, you're in the front and guiding is kind of the same way. I'd never realized that I could have so much fun with somebody not fishing, but getting somebody to catch a fish and the pleasure out of it, you know, and helping create a, a, a lifetime memory. And so eventually Gary went from six to the next year to 10, the next year to 12, the next year to 20. And so, you know, if anybody's out there is pissed at me being a guy, they need to call Gary Merriman up and blame him. Yeah, there you go. Fair enough. And, you know, one question I always ask uh, all of our guests that are guides is to kind of share what they think the biggest misconception folks have about the life of a guide. Uh, the biggest misconception, uh, you know, there's a couple. But I, I'd say one of the bigger ones is that your, your, your sports, your anglers, never, most of them, don't cast the way you would expect them to cast. 
You know, you may be an advanced caster as a guide, and most of your clients are going to be anywhere from novice to intermediate. And so you've got to be patient. You and and man, you have got to coach them up. You know, nobody. You know, you've heard all the stories about guys going down to the keys and getting yelled at and screamed at by the best of them. And you know, my feeling is when you're hiring me and spending money to go out on the boat, you're, you're at, I need to be encouraging, not discouraging. So you've got to be patient, expect that your customer isn't going to be the best caster. Um, and, and the other thing I would say is, you know, as a guide, if you think it's, it's a wonderful lifestyle, but you better have a spouse on the other end that makes a lot of money because it's hard to make a living as a guide. It really is. You bet you better have a sugar mama on the other side of this, that's, that's bringing in the bucks because it is, you know, you lose a lot of days to weather and cancellations and blah, 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 blah. And so, but I, I think those are the two biggest misnomers about, about guiding, you know? Yeah, got it. And, you know, I've, I've listened to some of your earlier interviews and you've talked a lot about how secretive fishermen were, uh, when you were coming up, I think you were talking about how literally people would, uh, go out on the jetties, uh, when it was dark and come back before the the sun came up. So no one would know what they were doing. And, you know, we know that's all changed. And I know one of your big, uh, think something that's really important to you is sharing information. You know, why do you think that changed and why do you think that sharing information is so important to the sport? You know, that is, I, I'm always troubled by that question. Um, because on one hand, you know, when you, when you're a guide and you start sharing your waters, you're giving up your information, which means you're making your fishery harder. And my carp fishing is the perfect example that nobody was really carp fishing down on the flats of, of the Chattahoochee where I fished down in Roswell. Um, and I started guiding and, you know, talking about it more, letting people know that there's a great fishery down there. And, since then, my fish, my fish have gotten harder. So there's no question it's a double-edged sword. However, this is a, you know, we're on this, we're, we're on this planet and sharing it with a lot of people. And if it's something that you love to pieces, you know, my wife is really big on karma and she's got me to believe in karma. And so I am a huge believer in paying it forward. And that's now, that's how I've been living my life since I moved down here is that I am just trying to pay it forward. And, um, and, and I'm not going to kid you by paying it forward. It makes me feel good that I know that there's so many people out there that can enjoy what I love doing and now they're loving it. But on the, uh, on the downside, it's made what I love doing that much more challenging because, you know, pressure doesn't leads to tougher fishing. And so that, that's, that's the hard part of that, you know, and, uh, you know, if you want to be a guide or you want to be a writer or you want to be a, an author or whatever it is, you're going to be giving up stuff that, you know, you're making your fishing harder. And so I have a lot of respect for the guides. There's a lot of these young guides now that are coming up. I was speaking to one of them tonight. Uh, matter of fact, I was on the phone with Daniel Bowman, who's a really wonderful young guide up in uh, North Georgia. And he's fishing some waters that he is keeping, you know, really really quiet and doing really really well with and and i re totally respect why he doesn't want to you know announce that because especially when you're fishing a river you know a lake can take a little more pressure a river can't really take a lot of pressure and so you know this is this is the you know this is the toughest part about sharing you know you can share but you can only share so much at some point you have to kind of say okay you know i'm going to tell you what you can do up here in North Georgia, but I'm not going to tell you exactly where you can do it, but I'll, you know, you go figure it out, you pay your dues. And, and that, that quite frankly may be enough, you know, but nobody's going to say, you know, Oh, by the way, I was on Lanier and, you know, I was in cocktail cove in the back on the left and man, the fish came up because the next day there's going to be 30 boats in there. So, you know, that, that's what the internet has brought forth today, you know, and that's, what's really changed probably over the last 20 years, more than anything, everything used to be a whole lot more secretive back then. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, on the angler end of it, that anglers need to, um, really appreciate 
the investment that, you know, people like you or Blaine and other guides have put in to, you know, learn the fisheries and learn your craft. And, you know, there's about, and to your point, there's being generous, but, you know, just because you go for a guide day doesn't mean that, you know, you're supposed to open uh, and tell all of your secrets either. So I think, you know, the individual anglers need to be a little bit more appreciative and understanding, um, you know, of the time that you guys have put in uh, to figure things out. Cause I, you know, sometimes have to tell people, it's like, you know, if someone came into your office and said, here's 600 bucks, tell me exactly how to do your job. You'd never do it. That's right. Well, you know, the other thing is, especially in our sport that we love Marvin, you know, you go to these shows and I, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. One of the big, this has been going on for years. The big problem is you look at two thirds of the guys and the gals that are in, that are in the door. And most of them are over 50, 55 years old and a good bit of them are over 60. And so, you know, we are in the industry, we are, we are just absolutely craving young folks to come in young, young men and young women, um, you know, of all types, all ethnicities. We just want more young people involved in the sport. And, and so, you know, I'm a 60 plus year old guy, you know, if I'm not going to share it with the young guys and get them involved and help them along so that they can love it and appreciate it, what is it going to end with? It's going to end when the last 60 year old passes, you know, I mean, it's, we've got to keep paying it forward and passing it on. If, if you love it, then I think you just have an obligation to, to pay it forward. It's just that simple. By the way, that's why I, so when you talk about the young guys in the sport, like we were talking beforehand off, off the air, you know, guys like Landon Mayer and George Daniel and Blaine Chocolate, these are the young guys that are doing it. So I am, I, I am so proud of those guys because they are the superstars in the sport right now and they are doing it right. They respect what they've learned from the, from the older generation, but they're doing it right. And, the, and they're, they're just paving the way, the way it should be paved. And so I really feel like our sport is going to be left in great hands to the next generation. Yeah, no, I know all three of those guys and they're just, you know, not only are they good anglers, they're just really great people. Exactly. You know, and kind of a related point is kind of interesting. I'm a big believer that teachers learn as much uh, from their students uh, it, or let me see if I can say it a little bit better. I guess I believe that, you know, teachers learn as much from their students as they teach them. And uh, I was kind of curious, you know, what you've learned from some of the folks that you've mentored and uh, paid it forward to. Well, you know, you, you can listen, everybody, anybody who thinks they know it all is sorely mistaken. Okay. Sorely mistaken. I mean, I'm always learning stuff, especially uh, I'll tell you the, the one fishery that absolutely, you know, I love learning more about is the carp fishery, you know, and what these fish are doing and why they're eating and why they're not eating. And, um, there was a young guy named Brandon who, who lived in Georgia. He's now working up for Orvis and in Manchester and Brandon came to me, he started fishing carp probably about three years ago. And we were talking and whatnot. And I was, and, and he was telling me about how when he'd see the fish on the surface and they were sunning themselves, all of a sudden they'd go down and I was just figuring, okay, well, they're now moving along. He would throw that fly. And when they'd go down, that's when he would catch them. Now I never heard of that before. And he said, Henry, I've tried it once. I've tried it 30 times. So, you know, there's always guys that are coming up that are paying, you know, and, and I think some of these young guys, I mean, listen, nothing against us old guides, but these young guides are just some of the best hot shots going right now. And when I tell you these guys, you know, can talk the talk and walk the walk, the guys like Jake Darling, you know, up at Unicoi Outfitters, there's a whole bunch in this Daniel Bowman. These are young guys that are barely 30 years old, maybe they're in their mid to late twenties. And these guys are paying attention, figuring it out. And you'd be crazy not to want to go in a boat and figure out what you hadn't figured out that they did. And just add that to your quiver because that may put an extra bite or two in the boat. So, you know, wh why wouldn't you? And, and, you know, so to think that we all know it all and have learned it all, you know, that that's, that's, that's just a farce. You know, that's a misnomer. You can always learn. You can always learn. Yeah. And it's interesting too, you know, kind of talking about the fly fishing shows. One of the neat things to do is to, you know, uh, 
have a chance to grab beers with guys like that. And, you know, what I always find really interesting is how, you know, if you take three different uh, guides and ask them how they solved one particular problem, they've got probably at least three different ways that they figured out how to solve it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The biggest problem with that is that these young guys can drink you under the table. So that's, that's the biggest problem is sitting down with these guys to have a beer. You know, the next day, the next day you wake up and you overslept because you never realized you could drink that much. Yeah. Well, it's important to learn things every day. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, you've already done a tremendous amount in your angling career, Henry, you know, what else do you want to accomplish, um, as an angler or a writer and a guide before you hang up the rods? Um, what do I want to accomplish? You know, I, I don't mean to push a hot button on, on a political scene, but you know, one of the things that's going on today, um, of, about everybody being more inclusive, whether it's, you know, Hispanics, African-Americans, I don't care if you're transgender. I, I, I don't care. I, I would love to just see our, our, our fisheries become more inclusive, you know, and, and we see what's going on politically out there, um, you know, with all the stuff going on. And I just think that we can all show a little bit more, more love and, and bringing people into something that is such a great sport. You know, I, I spent a lot of years when I used to write for, uh, American angler. And, and I wrote quite a few years for fly tire. I was on their masthead as well. One of the things I did was trying to find articles to write about young fly tires that nobody heard of that are doing really cool things. And so I got to, you know, I got to, to write about, um, uh, Johnny King and I got to write about David Nelson and, and you can find these, these diamonds in the rough. If you'll just open your eyes up and, and not worry about what's, in, you know, what's in it for you, but what's good for the sport is really good for you. And I think I'm starting to live more of my life that way. And so I, 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 I am going to, just to give you a, for instance, if I go to a boat ramp and I'm putting my boat in the water, um, and I see, you know, a young person or a person of color, I'm going to go up to that person and make them feel welcome. And just say, hey, how you doing? Good for you. Glad you're going. Oh, you're going carping today? That's great. You know, yeah, I hope we, we do well. And just, I, I think that's a big part of where my head's at these days. Um, and that's important to me. Um, one of the things that, um, you know, I'm very involved in a lot of different fundraisers and I'm using whatever reach I have to help where we can raise funds. One of the things we're just in the middle of getting started with, David, is there's a... Um, there's an outfit out there called Nomadic Waters, and, and what they do is um, they are an Amazon peacock bass uh, uh, outfitter, and they just canceled their entire 2020 season this fall. And uh, the guy who runs the operation, there's two owners, basically, and the one who's the U.S. Uh, owner here lives not far from me here in Georgia. And, and he's going to be just fine, but his whole village of where everybody comes from, those 20 people that work for his organization, whether they're guides or chefs or they, they clean the boats and whatever they do, they're just part of his organization. These people are going to have no money for the, for, for the 2020 season. So we here um, are a lot of us here in Georgia and we have out, we've reached out to people in as far out as North Carolina, um, out in Colorado land and mayor and, uh, uh, Gene, Gene Brune is, is a guide out in, in, in Jackson Hole. We're all putting a fundraiser together o over the next few weeks. That's going to be coming up sometime probably end of July and August where we're going to be giving away, raffling off some just fantastic um, equipment and, and trips uh, that you can take for very little money. And it's all tax deductible. And we're hoping we can raise fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 that can go a long way for this village in, in the Amazon. And so things like that, that's what really gets me going these days. If you, if, if you must know that's, it's not about what my next fly is going to be, or, you know, yeah, I'm coming out with a book that I'm very excited about. We can talk about, but that, that's not what turns me on, you know, helping others and making others feel inclusive. That's, that's where my head's at. 
Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, the situation in the Amazon, and I've had similar conversations I can remember with Peter Stitcher at Ascent Fly Fishing, because he um, really kind of tries to take that same holistic approach with his tires in Kenya. You know, you know what we don't understand in the United States is that those jobs, they don't just support the person doing them. They're supporting usually an extended family of people that rely on that person uh, for their livelihood. Marvin, you couldn't have said that any better. And, and it's the old, it takes a village. And so, you know, our village here in the United States is going to try and help nomadic waters village, you know, in the Amazon. And I, and I just think, you know, uh, the hair on the back of my neck stands up when I think about being able to help like that. It just, it makes me feel so good. So, you know, if I can do more stuff like that, you know, that's, you know, I'm, I'm fulfilled. I'm a lucky man. Yeah, well, I think, you know, too, I think it's just, you know, um, it's so easy to focus on the negative. But, you know, I think we all have a tremendous ability to do an an incredible amount of good in the world if we would just kind of slow down and think about it a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. A hundred percent. So hundred percent. So, yeah. Yeah. So that that, that's what I got cooking. You know, that's what I see for the future. You know, I'm, I'm still if I had listened. I'm not going to kid you when my time's going to come one day when I'm going to have to hang my rods up. But if I had one more day to fish, I'm just telling you right now, it'd be on a bonefish flat. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's where I would be. Well, there you go. And you're reluctant to talk about your book, but I'm going to tease it out of you. You know, we've been, uh, eagerly awaiting the book and, and I know that, uh, that lefty is the one that made you commit to write it. Um, and you've done a lot to popularize chasing stripers and um, in fresh water. And, you know, like so many things, um, I know that your release date has been disrupted due to COVID. Um, and so do you want to kind of update our listeners on kind of the, the update on the release date and if there's an opportunity to pre-order the book? Yeah, you know, the release date is going to be in 21 now. They haven't said whether it's going to be March, April, May, but uh, – Simon Schuster is going to be distributing it. It's through Skyhorse. It'll be on Amazon. So I'm sure you'll be able to go on to Amazon and pre-order it. And, uh, um, but it, it's, uh, you know, I was very, like, like you had said, I was very fortunate. Lefty came to me with this project and uh, hooked me up with Skyhorse. And so uh, it's going to be a book about freshwater striper fishing anywhere in the United States, whether you're stripers or hybrids and from coast to coast. And we touched upon all of it. And I've got some just, you know, the top guns in the, in, in the freshwater striper business of all, you know, lent their, you know, their knowledge to the book, as well as some of the top, believe it or not, I hate to circle back some of the top gear guides that, that have helped. Um, and, and I'll say their fingerprints are all over the book, even though it's fly fishing. And even though this is a fly fishing book, if you were not a fly fisherman, you know, and just a gear guide, this, this book will help you, you know, locate, find and catch stripers. So I'm pretty proud of it. It took, uh, it took a little bit longer. It was supposed to be released a year ago, but when lefty got sick and passed away, I went into a funk as if it was my second father. And so that, that just threw me back a whole year. And then I just, uh, you know, we rebounded, I grieved and rebounded and wrote it. And, uh, um, very fortunate that I've had some, like I said, some great people, Dan Blanton and especially Dave Whitlock, uh, very involved in the project. And so, uh, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be next year. It'll probably be sometime around spring of 21. Well, very, very neat. And you mentioned your fundraiser, uh, for the Amazon. Are there any other kind of, uh, Henry Cowan news and announcements you want to share with our listeners? Any other news or announcements? Uh, all guide trips have been canceled through uh, this summer due to COVID because I'm too scared to get in a boat with anybody. And we're booking trips for the fall, but you know we're gonna pray that uh, something this thing goes away. And if not, we'll be can- we'll be canceling it. You can change my name from Henry Cowan to Captain Cancellation. I'll be canceling those trips in the future if if COVID doesn't go away. I'm just not gonna risk it. And it's a shame. It bothers me because I really miss. Uh, being on the, on the back of the boat with somebody, whether I'm pulling them for carp or, you know, taking them for stripers, but, uh, this is what we have to do. So, but no, no other announcements. Everything is, everything else is, uh, pretty much, uh, standard. 
Well, there you go. Well, listen, why don't you let folks know where they can uh, find you on the internet and uh, follow your adventures on social media when you do get back on the water so maybe they can get on your guide calendar for the fall of 2020. Okay, well, they can they can reach out to me at 678-513-1934. That's the home number where they can reach me. You can go to www.henrycowenflyfishing.com and check us out. We have videos on that we're trying to, you know, when, when we've got folks in the boat, um, that we're, that we're constantly updating where we can. And, uh, uh, on Instagram and on Facebook, it's just Henry Cowan. Uh, so either one, nothing, nothing special. And, uh, and that, that's, and actually I, I will tell you if there's something you want to laugh at and, and Marvin, I don't know if you've seen the video, but if you go on to Vimeo onto my Vimeo page of Henry Cowan and look for the bananas are lucky video. We, uh, my, a very dear friend of mine, Keegan Corcoran and I, we, uh, we squashed the theory of bananas being unlucky in a boat and it's all on the video and you can watch it. And I'm not going to say any more other than you need to watch the two and a half minute video of why bananas can actually be very lucky for fishermen. Yeah, you know what? I'll drop a uh, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes along with all of your other contact details. And you know, Henry, I appreciate you spending some time with me this evening. I really appreciate it. Well, Marvin, I I'm absolutely delighted that I you know I've been I, you know I've been waiting five years to get on your podcast. I'm glad you finally got down to the bottom of the barrel and and invited me on. So thank you so much, buddy. <laughs> My pleasure. Have a great evening. You too, pal. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review in the podcatcher of your choice and tell a friend. It really helps us out. And again, a shout out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at the Bristol Bay Defense Fund. Go to www.bristolbaydefensefund.com and donate today. Tight lines, everybody.